just a word again of appreciation to the worship team. Just always appreciate how they prepare us, help us get ready for opening the word together. So Kevin and the team, we're grateful for you guys and how you're used by the Lord in that. The group Open Doors says that on average, each day worldwide, 13 people are killed for following Jesus Christ. That's about 4,800 Christians murdered each year. That is, killed simply because they will not renounce faith in Christ. And Open Doors tries to be very careful about how it comes up with these numbers based on reports and understanding of persecution. And so they will acknowledge that the numbers are probably considerably higher. There is much persecution that goes on in secret in places like North Korea and Afghanistan. There's persecution that goes on under the veil of of conflict and strife within the country like Somalia. So it's likely those numbers are, are much higher. That's the number of Christians who are killed Tens of thousands more are imprisoned, estimated 50,000 to 70,000 in prison camps just in North Korea. Thousands more face torture, abduction, rape, enslavement, other forms of agonizing persecution simply for believing in Jesus Christ as Savior. Here in the U.S., following Jesus Christ as a, as a biblically-oriented believer, living out biblical beliefs, probably will not cost you your life, but could get you a a reprimand at work, could get you written up in a personnel file, could get you mocked by friends and family. The, the cancel culture, as we've seen, might set upon you and subject you to mocking or try to destroy your business or cut off your livelihood in some way, may deny you tenure or try to tie you up in litigation for, for practicing what you believe. As Christians, we, we know this. We, we understand we follow a Savior who who was despised and rejected and who warned us of the same. And and so what are some practical ways for us to respond to that? I want you to turn to Acts chapter 23. And sometimes I I feel like as we work through the book of Acts, some of this feels redundant in the sense that we've seen this level of persecution and response to it. And yet we keep, keep seeing it. This was throughout the life of the early church. This was the the constant state of the early church to be proclaiming the gospel and also to be facing hardship and persecution for it. This morning, we're going to look at the last roughly half, two-thirds of of chapter 23, and then all of 24. We'll read it all at at, at once. And it it really focuses in these, these last chapters of the book of Acts, 24 through 28. It's really, I think, three overriding themes, if you will, that have already been sort of laid out for us of where we're going over these next few weeks. The one is Paul's movement toward Rome. That's been since chapter 19, when when God makes it clear and presses upon Paul that he will go to Rome. He will stop in Jerusalem, but will go to Rome. And so we're following him there. The church is established there. He's already written to the church. There are believers there, but, but he believes God has called him there to go and teach and strengthen that body of believers in Rome. Second thing that will dominate these last five or six chapters is just trials, judicial hearings, Paul standing before governing authorities. It, it's this constant defense against uh, the, the, the persecution, the charges, the accusations, and standing before these Roman governing officials to, to answer the question of, well, how did you get in chains in the first place? How did this start? What, what, what's behind all of this? And then finally, I would say to you that the most important theme by far that, that we see in these closing chapters is the constant, gracious, loving, 
invisible hand of God's providence at work in orchestrating all of these things so that even in the midst of turmoil and trials and accusations and conspiracies for murder that we're going to read about today, despite all of this going on, God is still moving Paul where he wants Paul to be, putting Paul in front of the people he wants him to speak to, and ultimately moving him to Rome. I think that's the heart of what we're going to be seeing is that the injustices, and they are clear acts of mistreatment against Paul, the things that we see are not somehow outside of the, the loving hand of God. He's not being thwarted in these things. His will is still being carried out. The, the Jews and the Romans could, could do what they want, but they could not stop God from accomplishing his purposes. So I want to read all this, and then we'll go back to it. Just highlight briefly just four examples of, of the injustice that Paul experiences and then, and then five takeaways for us as to how we can respond when targeted and treated unjustly. So I'm going to pick up in Acts 23.12, read all the way through chapter 24. So it's a long section, follow along if you will, Acts 23 verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot, bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, the Roman commander, to bring Paul down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing, deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded, them to be, commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let me just pause there, and then we'll go through 24. So this is 
Paul's been taken into custody. This is all unfolding in Jerusalem. The idea now is we're, we're going to get Paul. We're going to have him brought down for hearing. We're going to get him. We're going to kill him. We'll end all of this. And the response is to get Paul out of town in the middle of the night. Third hour would be around 9 o'clock at night. It's worth noting that this is probably half the military corps that, that, that the Tribune has under his rule there in, in Jerusalem, that he is sending with Paul. That is the seriousness with which he takes that. He probably has about 1,000 men, and he uses almost half of that number just to get Paul safely out of town. And so they take him to the coast, about 60 miles, about a two-day journey over to Caesarea, where the governor is, enjoying his nice Mediterranean portside sort of view where he is as governor, and now they bring Paul to him. So chapter 24, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers." Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, the Ephesus in that area, they, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In the last section. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. All right, that's a lot of ground to cover. But we started with Paul under guard in Jerusalem. 
He is en route to Rome ultimately, but he is now under guard. It is two years later at the end of the chapter, and he is in Caesarea along the Mediterranean Sea. So let's just kind of work through just some of the injustices, some of the mistreatment that, that Paul experiences. First thing that's so obvious is the, the evil conspiracy to try to kill him. There are more than 40 Jews who come together who say, we, we've got a plan that we can get Paul killed. They, have, they make an oath, in fact. That, that gives us a little bit of a glimpse of the, the, the measure of hatred there is against Paul, that 40 men will swear out this oath that they will kill Paul before they eat of any food. It was obviously a foolish oath. It was one that, as we know, they could not keep. There was, within some of the rabbinical writings, there was an out for them that if circumstances changed when you made the oath and they were unavoidable, that, that you were okay. And so an oath is only an oath until it's not anymore. And so they were probably let off the hook for this. Uh, but again, the fact that you've got more than 40 who are joined in this just demonstrates just the level of, of savagery and hatred toward him. And that there is not just some opposition, but there is united, conspiring opposition against him. If you've ever been in a situation where you've had somebody working behind your back, somebody who is criticizing you behind your back, mocking you in some way behind your back, you, you know the hurt in that. But you know how much worse it is when you find out that there are multiple people, that it's not just this one person, but there's actually a group of people who know you, who are, who are now working behind you, who are conspiring, who are criticizing you in some way against you for something that, that may not even be true, but they just hate you in this way. There's the, this first kind of injustice that Paul experiences, just this conspiracy against him. You may not have ever had people conspire for your life, but you may understand that feeling of people working against you. Second thing is the, the flattery and exaggeration that Paul's opponents use. The flattery toward Felix, the exaggeration regarding Paul that they use when they come into Felix's courtroom. When, when Paul is brought before Governor Felix, we meet this new individual, Tertullus, who appears to be sort of the the hired lawyer, the one that said, you need somebody prosecuted, I'm your man, call 1-800-whatever, you know, those, the signs for the lawyer. Well, Tertullus is the man. He is the spokesman for the Sanhedrin who we've not met before, that he is going to prosecute the case against Paul. And we don't know anything about Tertullus. We're not even confident about his ethnicity. Um, what we do see, though, is just this sort of sickening highly embellished sort of talk before the judge that probably a lot of judges in courtrooms wouldn't even tolerate to some point. Felix certainly does. The, the, the Jews we know hated Felix. It would be within about two years of this time. In fact, we know it's two years because it's the, the fact that Felix is replaced, the reason Felix is replaced by Festus is largely because a contingent of Jewish leaders from that region went to Rome and said, we have had enough of this man's brutality and his ineptitude and listed all of the things Felix had done wrong and Felix is finally removed from the governorship. That's how much the Jews despised him, that they were plotting to get rid of him and eventually would. And so when Tertullus steps up and he says, oh, Felix, we are so thankful for you. Your, your foresight and your, your reforms in the nation, the things that you do are just, I mean, it's just, they are digging at this point. This is just making stuff up and it is appealing to a man who is evil, who loves this kind of stuff and, and, and it is nothing but flattery. They, they understand that, that 
what he is about is, is pushing the Jews down and they want to overthrow him. Paul, then they exaggerate about Paul. Oh, this, this guy is public enemy number one. He stirs up trouble everywhere he goes. He causes riots wherever he goes. And, and, and Paul is the same one who you'll recall, Rome, Romans has been written by this time. Paul's the same one who wrote to the church at Rome and said, Submit to the governing authorities, for they have been appointed by the Lord, that you are to obey those, you are to honor those who, who govern you. And here's, here's this nonsense, this exaggeration that says, oh, Paul is just, he is just a rebel. He is just out to destroy things and, and to overthrow Rome. And none of it's true. Have you ever been falsely accused situation where somebody has taken maybe something about you and exaggerated in a way to their own benefit and to your detriment? Ever been in a situation where, where people have, um, you, you, you've sat in front of the supervisor and, and you're listening to this person who you know has said awful things about the supervisor, now flattering the supervisor because they want to somehow get you in some way. And, and, and you're just hearing things come out of their mouth that just make no sense and are not true. We, we often get ourselves in trouble when we align ourselves with that, that person who, who seems to talk about everybody else but, but likes us and, and they criticize and they gossip about everybody else and then we find out later that actually they've, they've actually done the same thing about us. They've been gossiping about us. They've been working behind our back at the same time. Proverbs 18.8 says, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. It's the fact that gossip, slander, exaggeration, flattery, and our sinful nature, there's, there's a sense in which some of that feels appealing sometimes, and it draws us in, and it gets us in trouble. People like Tertullus live for this, to, to flatter and exaggerate and slander in ways that seem appetizing, and certainly in ways that were meant to, to win Felix over before there was ever even a case presented. Third injustice. The charges against Paul are made without any witnesses. Paul is, is going to point this out, but Tertullus at the beginning says, I, I don't want to take up a lot of your time. I want to make this brief. And the reason he's making it brief is because he doesn't have anything. There, there's no case here. There's no, there's no witnesses. There's no body of evidence that he's going to present. If he had something there, it would have been more than brief. But instead, he, he explains that there's been rioting and, and, and Paul's done this and, and caused trouble. And, and, and yet, there's nothing. There's no one who can come and say, Yep, we, we heard Paul do that. Yes, we saw Paul take a Gentile into the temple and defile it in some way. Because it didn't happen. Tertullus and the high priest and, and some of these other priests make the two-day trip to Caesarea without a case. They're just going to flatter and they're going to throw out the same charges and they're going to hope that, that essentially Felix will side with them because they've got nothing to prove their case. And, and remarkably couldn't even find people who were willing to stand up and lie against Paul. You had to, if you're Paul going into this, you had to assume that, that there might be, if there were more than 40 conspiring to kill you, likely there'd be some who would be willing to take the risk and make up stories and make false accusations. Couldn't even get that. Couldn't even get false witnesses to come. Tertullus says nothing. No, no proof for any of these accusations. Have you ever been accused without proof? You find out that somebody's thought something about you, that they assumed something about you. They assumed something about your motives. They, they jumped to conclusions about why you were doing something and about your motives and things. Someone's bent on implicating you in something, even though there's no evidence. 
They haven't come and talked to you. They haven't asked. They haven't tried to to bear it out in any way. They they simply have accused you. In in Paul's case, there was one other injustice. We've seen three. And the, the last one comes right at the end of the story, which is he's gone through this hearing. He's being held in in Caesarea. Felix is calling Paul up from chains from time to time or from his restraint wherever he is at this point and and is sort of engaging with him. We already know Felix realizes this is just a religious dispute. There's no grounds to any of this. Paul shouldn't be held because he hasn't violated Roman law, but yet he seems to be sort of... um, wanting to just keep Paul around. Well, well we, we realize what's explained at the end of chapter 24 is he had an ulterior motive. He wanted a bribe. One of the things that, that even Paul had described in chapter 23 was how I brought alms to my nation and presented offerings. Paul is a guy who's influential. He's got a wide array of friends throughout the empire. He's been able to travel around and collect offerings to bring back to those who were in need in Jerusalem. And so Felix is just gambling on the thought here that Paul's friends, his supporters, if they were willing to give before, why not, right? If they know that he's here, they know me, we got a deal here. They'll come and they'll bring a bribe. Four blatant injustices. I I would say to you, the fact that Luke reports this, not just as a surmising, but the fact that it was known that Felix was this way, is that Felix was not secret about this. Felix let it be known that there is a way for Paul to get out of this situation. You all can help if you come and bring some money. Four blatant injustices. Leave Paul languishing in prison in Caesarea. No one could prove anything, and yet he is stuck with no recourse. So what what can we learn? Here's where I really want to focus. Our, Our learning from this. How do we respond? How did Paul respond to this? I'm going to give you five things quickly. First one, be wise. First thing, Paul hears about this from his nephew. We, we get introduced to, to Pauline family that we, we don't meet otherwise in Scripture. We find out that he has a sister and a nephew and a nephew who overhears this conspiracy. And, and when the nephew comes to Paul, Paul calls the centurion and he moves this story along so that something can be done about it. He acts in wisdom. A believer in Jesus Christ... Is, is not called to be a defenseless doormat who lays down in resignation and just says, ah, this, this is never going to work. I'm defeated. It's over. And Paul's nephew comes and he hears of the plot. Paul immediately calls this guard. It, it, by the way, says something about the guard's respect for Paul. The fact that the guard doesn't say to Paul, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I don't work for you. I don't serve you. The fact that the guard takes the nephew and sends him along to the commander says that there is respect for Paul, even amongst the, the, the guards who are around him. And he acts with wisdom to protect himself. Paul does what's necessary at that point. He gets the information where it needs to be. In, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent his disciples out amongst the Jewish people, and they were, they were to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the coming of the one you've been awaiting is, is here. And, and, and it is now time for, for God to unfold his kingdom before you. Jesus says to them, tell them that the one they had hoped for has come. But then in Matthew 10, 16 and 17, he says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. 
Jesus said, you, you will be as sheep among wolves. That, that's as predatory a place as you can be. You are a, a defenseless sheep. You have no natural way to defend yourself against wolves, and you are now being surrounded by them. So the, on the one hand, the picture is you are utterly powerless and fully dependent on the shepherd. You, you must rely on me, on Jesus. But Jesus also tells his disciples in that process is that you are to be as sensible or as prudent as snakes. You also are, are, are to be wise, too. You're not supposed to just foolishly run into a situation that's, that's asking for trouble. You're not looking to be harmed in some way. You're to be wise about this. Commentator Leon Morris says, disciples are sheep indeed, but that does not mean that they are to be stupid. Our, our commitment to God's sovereignty does not mean we just shrug our shoulders and walk toward danger and say, well, it's, it's all up to God. We should fully trust him. If we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, we should fully trust that he is in control and whatever the outcome is will be for his glory and for our good. But we're also called to use wisdom and care and, and not be foolish. Paul didn't in that moment go, oh man, that's a terrible plot. I wonder how God's going to get me out of that. And, and just sit back and do nothing. He said, go, go and tell the, the, the commander and do something about it. As you deal with hardened sinners, sometimes you'll encounter them in your workplace, a, a colleague who is antagonistic, a family member who is wildly opposed to, to your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe a neighbor who has mocked your faith in Christ, and, and, and who has rejected Christ and may even have made it clear that, that, that they think that you are foolish and your faith is foolish, there is no need to engage in any and every conversation and to respond to any and every foolish question or objection. There's, there's some wisdom here that we are called to use. If someone only wants to debate you about the climate or gender issues, or how you discipline your kids, or how you do marital roles in your home, or whether Noah's flood was a global flood, or, or all those sorts of things. And all they want to do is just get into those kind of secondary, tertiary sort of issues so that they can prove their intelligence over you and just keep debating those things. And you've, you've proclaimed Christ, and you've tried to show them what really matters, and that's all they want to do. There's a point at which it's not helpful to just continue to engage. That is, that is answering a fool according to his folly when somebody is simply argumentative and, and, and just trying to provoke you in some way. It's different. Certainly there, there are people, and, 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 and I, hopefully by the leading of the Spirit we're wise enough to discern, there are people who are searching for biblical answers. They actually want to know what Scripture has to say about this and why you believe what you believe. And they're genuinely inquiring, by all means, teach them, help them. But, but you understand what I'm saying here. When, when, when it's that sort of aggressively antagonistic, atheistic kind of, I just want to mock you. I just want to show that what you believe is absurd. There's a point at which it, we're, it's almost senseless for us to persist and persist and persist. It's not an all-encompassing principle here. If you, if, you're, if you are grounded in the word and you are willing to engage someone and debate some of these secondary issues, by all means, go for it. But understand, the primary issue has got to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. If, if we are not getting back to the fact that there is a God to whom they are accountable and we are sinners, 
and we need to be made right with him, and that's only through Christ, then we are spinning our wheels on, on, on issues that ultimately will not change anything. So we need to be wise. We don't need to give our opponents ammunition on issues apart from the gospel. If we're, if we're going to alienate them, let it be on the basis of the gospel. Let it be on the basis of sin and a savior, uh, not on, on, on all of the secondary matters, which even within the evangelical community sometimes we struggle with. So be wise. Secondly, respect authority. Tertullus does his, his whole flattery spiel about, you know, just how wonderful and all your reforms and how exceedingly good you are. Paul steps up, chapter 24, verse 10, and he says to Felix, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. That is a wise, honest, respectful statement. He is acknowledging Felix's position as governor and the fact that he has made rulings. He's not commending the kind of rulings Felix made. He's not making stuff up about Felix's governing ability. He's simply saying, I understand that you have been in this position, and so I am glad to make a defense before you. That is a simple, clear respect for authority. In 1 Peter 2, it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governor's as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. We are called to respect authority, to be people who honor authority, not, not, to, not to capitulate and sin because of something that authority says. We're not called to do that. There are times we have to say, no, I, I can't do that because I'm a believer. But we can always be respectful in the way that we approach that. There's a video that was circulating just a few days ago on the internet of a pastor of a, a Canadian church where the service had been interrupted by, um, you, you may have seen it, a bunch of police, probably half a dozen or so police who were enforcing COVID restrictions. This pastor grew up in Poland, pre, still, still during the communist era, so I, I have no sense of being in his shoes and, and understanding his own personal experience with government interfering with people's ability to worship, and so I understand that's part of it, but in the video, he spends most of the time yelling at the police, just screaming at them to get out and calling them Nazis and Gestapo and, and, and just being angry and vicious toward them. There's an argument here of shepherd protecting his sheep, but even in that sense, I, I'm not sure what's accomplished by yelling and name-calling at that point. I, I, I'm just not sure that that's... When I, when I watch Paul here, I, I don't see him... Blaspheming your name on. The closest thing he does to name calling is, is what he actually backed off from, which is what we read last week when he said to the, the chief priest, You whitewashed wall. And then it, 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 he gets reminded and he backs down and says, Yes, you're supposed to respect those who are elders over you. Paul knew that Felix was a wretched man, that, that Drusilla, who we see here, is his third wife, that he is rebellious against God. But Paul also understood that the authority that Felix had was not something that he had on his own. It wasn't because his brother was close to the emperor. It was because God made him governor. And so Paul was in the position of respecting the position and the authority. And, and, and Paul responds accordingly. It's one thing to identify sin and, and urge repentance to point people to God's justice and forgiveness and the gospel. We should do such things in, in just, loving, gracious ways, and Paul did. And, and, and the fact is, as I mentioned to you earlier, the fact that Paul managed to constantly preach Christ 
and yet still even have the guards around him be somewhat sympathetic to him or understanding or willing to, even Felix says, let him have his friends, you know, let him have some level of, of freedom, tells you the fact that there was still something about Paul that was, was attractive. There was still something there that they said, this is actually a fairly nice guy. He's, he's not as he's portrayed because he was respectful to authority. He honored them. We're going to see in chapter 28 when he's under guard in Rome and and people are are freely coming in to see him. Even there, the guards are are encountering Paul as he's meeting with people and talking with people. And and, and there's an appreciation again for Paul, the person, whether or not they come to faith or not in the gospel. About the only time I, I think the New Testament speaks with sort of a different, sharper tone is when it's talking about those who profess to be Christians but who actually are deceiving believers with false teaching. Those who are false teachers, the New Testament is often blunt with, and it urges the church to be blunt with, to put them out, to confront them and put them out. We should have no tolerance for somebody who comes in as a wolf but pretends to be a believer and pretends to be teaching truth when they are teaching error. But in our normal, everyday interactions with with the antagonistic supervisor, with the argumentative parent, with the disagreeable neighbor, we should be respectful, knowing that we are talking to someone who has been made in the image of God, who is lost in sin, and who needs the Savior that we know, and and who is living through us. We should still be able to, to show them honor. Third, in all we do, we should be doing right We should be doing right. This one's obvious, I know. But both Lysias, the commander, Felix, the governor, they both reached the same conclusion. This guy's done nothing wrong. He shouldn't be in prison. He certainly shouldn't be executed. There's no no violation of, of Roman law here. And that's why Paul says, he said it earlier when he was in front of the Sanhedrin, and he says it here again in front of Felix, that I have strived to live with a clear conscience before God and man. I have by my decisions and actions and words and and all that I have done, I've tried to live a life that, as he would go on to, to describe when he's talking about qualifications for elders, he uses the term above reproach, one that cannot be subject to a charge, that when people make an accusation, Others who know that person go, hmm, I don't think so. I, I've watched this, his life, and, and, and yeah, he's not perfect, but, but he's tried to live by a good conscience. He's tried to live in obedience to God and, and to love man. In, in chapter 24, verse 11, Paul's response to the Jewish charges when he's standing in, in, in front of Felix, they, they say he came to Jerusalem to start a riot. When Paul says, he says, I, I was there for 12 days. You understand that what, what Paul's saying at that point, this is pre-print, pre-social media, pre, you know, where you could tweet and say, we're going to do a riot, you know, at, at some point. You couldn't do that. Paul, what Paul's saying is this is laughable. I had 12 days in Jerusalem, and you're going to say I somehow ginned up a riot in this town? This is all them. There's no facts to go with any of this. I, I didn't do it. I didn't stir up an insurrection. And he says it again. If I did... Bring me one witness who overheard me saying that. If I took a Gentile into the the proper area of the temple and and defiled the temple, there should be somebody here who will say, I saw him do it. And yet there's none. And the reason there's no witnesses, and Paul can claim a clear conscience, is because he had obeyed Roman law, he had obeyed God's law, and there was not a charge that would stick. He had been doing what was right. 
Peter, as he's writing to Christians again, 1 Peter 3, says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. These are believers under persecution. Don't, don't respond the way the flesh wants to respond. Return blessing instead. He went on in that same context. He says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Regardless of our circumstances or context, we should be doing right. We should still be responding with mercy and kindness. Doesn't mean we can't respond with truth and clarity and that we, we shouldn't confront. Not saying that at all. Just saying we shouldn't respond by the flesh and those, those instincts to try to fight back and to show that anger. Don't return evil for evil. We don't instigate chaos or trouble. It's not what we do as believers in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 also speaks of this. We walk by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, not waging war according to the flesh. We're different. We live different. Jesus said in Matthew 5, live in such a way that your light shines before others, that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So be wise, respect authority, do right. Fourth, whenever possible, make Jesus the focal point. Paul does this over and over again. He begins his defense in the proper way that he should. He's been brought before the governor. They have charged him with violating Roman law. And so Paul, at the beginning of his defense, says, I have not. It's foolish. I, I was only there 12 days. There are no witnesses. I didn't defame the temple. So Paul, Paul responds to the charges and then immediately says, you really want to know what this is about, Felix? It's about belief in the resurrection of the dead. And he immediately pivots it to Jesus Christ. He does the respectful thing in front of the governing authorities to give an answer about the, the charges. And, and he could have stopped at that point. Paul could have stopped and said, there's no witnesses. I didn't do any of this. We're done. I can go now, right? And, and that would have been the end. And yet Paul says, listen, these men and I, we actually do have a very serious disagreement. It is about the resurrection of the dead. And my belief that the first to be risen from the grave is Jesus and that all of us will follow after him and we will be judged by Jesus. And that's where we fundamentally disagree, which is, again, what, what then begins to confound Felix and why he brings Paul up for these conversations. Verse 24, with his Jewish wife by his side, he calls Paul back and, and Paul again speaks about, it says, faith in Christ Jesus, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Much like John the Baptist does in front of King Herod, Paul is not afraid to stand in front of a godless ruler and talk about sin and, and judgment and the fact that there is a God who you will stand before. That's exactly what, what got John the Baptist beheaded. But he's also seizing the opportunity to proclaim Christ, to offer forgiveness. Yes, there is a judgment, but there is a Savior. Paul shows respect to authority. He responds to the charges, and then he seizes the opportunity to speak about Jesus Christ. We often think of 1 Peter 3.15, the verse that says to always be ready to give an answer, to give a reason for anyone who asks you about your hope. And that's, that's in that context, 1 Peter 3, that we've been reading as we've skimmed over 1 Peter 3 a couple times. It's in that context of you will suffer, 
and you will suffer for doing good. And, and the idea is that if you, if you do respond to injustice by respecting your offender, by still showing honor to them as a human being, uh, by, by still responding with, with grace, at some point you probably will have an opportunity to give an answer for why you are this way, why you're not screaming back, why you're not fighting back in some way. And when you get asked that question, be ready to explain that you are at peace because you are trusting in Jesus Christ. I have a hope that beyond what's going on here in these circumstances, I can rest in Christ. You can tell them that it's the hope in Christ and the grace of God that sustains you. Be wise, respect authority, do what's right. Whenever possible, make Jesus the focal point. Last one is number five, in everything, trust God. Paul's opponents concocted a massive plan to kill him. When you've got more than 40 people who have gone before the Jewish leaders and said, we got this, we're going to kill him. In fact, we're, we're vowing not to eat until we do. You know that there is a conspiracy to, to kill you. And, and, and yet, in the midst of that, Paul's getting favor from God. Paul's nephew. Every commentator you read on this is like, makes no sense. We, we don't know what Paul's nephew, how he heard this. We, we're not quite sure how old he is. There's this question about when, when Lysias takes him by the hand, is he fairly young? Maybe he's not. How, how, how does Paul's nephew hear this and they not know that this is Paul's nephew? And, and hear this plot that's gone on that seems so good. God has got Paul's nephew hearing it. And then God shows favor so that when Paul says to the guard, please take him now to the commander, the guard doesn't say, I got my job to do. Get lost. You're the prisoner. You don't tell me what to do. Again, God shows favor. And the commander, who could have said, I don't know who this little boy or young man or whoever he is. I, I'm not listening to him or his story. He listens to him. And then when he listens to him, he takes roughly half of his contingent of troops and says, we are going to guard Paul like you have not guarded a single man, and we're going to give him horses to ride and him and his stuff out of town. We're going to do it in the middle of the night. This is God's providence. When we talk about God's providence, we're talking about how God works to, to execute his plan for his glory and for his people's good. Over and over again, God's hand moves Paul through these circumstances for his glory. Paul's job is, trust me, respect authority, speak Christ every opportunity you get, Paul. Just, just trust me. It's hard to turn conversations to Christ or to be gracious and respect authority when we are terrified about what will happen next. When we are just so wrapped up in the circumstances and we are furious at, at the person who has done wrong to us, or we are panicked about what's going to happen next, and, and all we can think about is what they did and what's going to happen. At some level, what Paul is at least showing to us here is, we've got to trust God. We have to, in those circumstances, say, I, I know whom I have believed, and, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed, that I, I, I can trust him, I can rest in him, I can believe in him. That's why we trust the God who could have prevented all this. 
this whole chain of events that starts in Jerusalem. If God didn't want it to happen, Paul would have gone there, delivered the alms, preached, and then he would have traveled on to Rome. But God permitted it for his own purposes. And Paul trusts that ultimately this is going to bring glory to him. And so he maintains his focus, even when there's a conspiracy to have him killed. When Felix is questioning him, he doesn't panic. I didn't do it. There's no witnesses. Now let me talk to you about what the real issue is here, and it's Christ. Remember what we read last week at the end of chapter 23, verse 11, right before we transition to verse 12. Jesus, it says, appeared to Paul, stood by him, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. We believe in God's promises. We believe that God is good. We believe that he doesn't abandon us, that he is with us, that he has a purpose for us, that he will carry us through to his eternal presence, and therefore we can rest in him. One of the first rules that politicians are taught, I did communications in the political world for a while, and one of the first things you want your boss to understand is when you do an interview or you do a debate, you stay on message. You don't get distracted by the questions. You, you say what you want to say. You make sure that you, you communicate your message. I, I want to suggest to you, for much purer motives, in the midst of a massive plot to kill him, in the face of false accusations against him, Paul is unmoved. He stays on message. He speaks truth. He honors authority, and he preaches Christ. Not some communication strategy. No, that's, that, this is just resting in God's sovereignty. This is the only place Paul knows to be at this point, is to just trust God and speak truth and trust that God can use this injustice for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promise to, through your son to be with us and your spirit to be in us. Father, we who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior have this hope, this anchor for the soul. We know that this life is not all there is, but it will be troubling at times and trying and difficult. And yet, the hope that we have in Christ surpasses all of that. That will not be taken away. We have a hope that is eternal a forgiveness that is complete, and we thank you for that. We thank you for what Christ has done on our behalf. Now we pray by your Spirit, help us to rest in that. Whatever circumstances, brothers and sisters in this room, watching online, whatever trying circumstances they are walking through now or will walk through in this next week or month, Lord, would you sustain them? as you say you will, would you give them strength and grace and peace, the meekness and gentleness of Christ, to speak truth, to not compromise, to not cave in on sin, but also to not become fearful, anxious, and agitated, to not respond in the according to the, the weapons of the flesh, as Paul described them in, in 2 Corinthians. If we're to wage war, we pray, Father, that you would help us to wage war with your truth, that we would be bold in proclaiming what we believe about our Savior, what the Word teaches, and that those who would oppose, who would slander, who would mock, 
may go off in their foolishness and still feel the same way, but would still in some way see a glimpse of the grace and kindness and meekness of Christ in how we respond. Father, if there's anyone watching this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, who has not come to the place of receiving the forgiveness and life that he gives. We pray for your spirit to do the miraculous work of opening blind eyes, breathing life to those who are dead in sin and enabling them to respond and receive Christ and believe in him as Savior. Father, may we, as your church, may we honor you by how we love and honor others around us when there are times of difficulty and struggle and even whatever forms of persecution we might experience. Please, please give us the wisdom and the boldness to speak truth into those situations. Help us to, to point to Christ. Help us to show people that we have a hope, and the reason we have that hope is Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.